Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached Word of God in agreement to the Scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Aren't you glad to be an American? Amen. Glad to be an American. You may be seated. I'm going to ask Brother Farrell, Brother Davis, if they will, to make their way to the platform. We're appreciative that these men and others in our congregation have served and we do not take for granted not one ounce of commitment that they have made to serve and represent our country and they and men and women like them have made it possible for us to be here today to be able to worship the Lord without any reserve and I'm very, very thankful. Amen. I appreciate these men being willing, especially these next two men being willing to step a little bit out of their comfort zone and uh, speak to us today. So would you make welcome to this platform these men. Jesus. Good morning. I'm sure some of you don't know who I am or where I came from. My name is Joe Farrell Michael. And I was born 81 years ago in a little board shack about five miles southwest of this church as the crow flies that my father built in the late 20s. My mother named me after two preachers, Reverend Joe Bell of the Baptist faith and Reverend Farrell of the Methodist faith. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if my surname wasn't derived from the archangel Michael. I'm a member of the Confederate veterans, sons of the Confederate veterans, Dixie Defenders, Camp 2086 at Old Town. And I'm wearing this uniform in honor of my great-grandfathers, Alan E. Michael and Louis A. Fraser. Alan E. Michael was born in Bullock County, Georgia, on the seventh day of September, 1833. He enlisted in the Confederate Army on the 15th day of January, 1862, in Captain Scott's Company, 10th Regiment of Florida at Fernandina, Florida. On the 20th day of February, 1864, during the Battle of, of Olesti, Florida, he was wounded in the head by a musket ball. He received, he recovered, and continued serving until he was honorably discharged at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. After General Lee's surrender on the ninth day of April, 1865, after returning to Florida in Lafette County, he homesteaded 160 acres about one mile north west of what is now Cross City. He died the 25th day of January, 1892, and was buried in the Cross City Cemetery. Louis A. Frazier was born in Shelby, Shelby, Alabama, on the 8th day of September, 1839. He visited, he enlisted in the Confederate Army on the 10th day of May, 1861, at Columbus, Georgia, in Captain Hall's Company A, 10th Georgia Regiment, Sims Brigade. While serving as second sergeant in the line of duty at Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, near Winchester, and after being exposed to the weather in camp for 23 days during the fall of the year, 1863, he contracted typhoid pneumonia. 
he was carried to the hospital in Richmond, and according to his physician, his fever never cooled for 73 days. Before recovering, he took the measles and was confined to the hospital for more than three months. As soon as he was able, he returned to his command, still suffering in pain in his chest caused by typhoid pneumonia and exposure. On the sixth day of May, 1864, during the Battle of the Wilderness in Virginia, while serving as lieutenant and in the command of his company, he received a wound from a musket ball in his left elbow, fracturing the bone and rendering his arm useless. He continued serving until he was honorably paroled on the 10th day of April, 1865, at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, after General Lee surrendered the Confederate Army. That's the picture of my great-grandfather, Frazier. I didn't have one of my great-grandfather, Michael. After being released, he returned to Florida and settled on a little farm in Lafette County, which now would be the north end of Dixie County, about a mile south of the Dixie-Lafette County line and about a mile from where I was raised. On the seventh day of April, 1881, his left leg was accidentally broken by a runaway horse, breaking both bones and knocking his ankle out of joint. The bones were never reset, causing his leg to be crooked and out of shape. Then on the 13th day of April, 1882, his right arm was accidentally broken above the elbow by a runaway horse. On September 30, 1889, he was approved for a pension of $72 a year. And in 1909, his pension was increased to $120 a year. Louis A. Frazier died at the age of 79 in 1918, although I never knew my great-grandfathers, I feel in my heart that they were good men, and I pray that they are in God's comfort. I will always give them honor for the great sacrifice that they made for the cause we believe in. I am proud of my ancestors, and I feel that some of their values have been handed down to me. Thank you for letting me share with you the strong feelings that I have for my great-grandfathers, and I salute you one and all. Amen. I said that, and that's the first time I ever said it, and I don't even know what it means, but I've seen guys do it, so I thought I'd try it. <laughs> uh, a few months back, I'm going to say April, Brother Michael came to me, and he said, I'm going to wear a uniform for uh, Veterans Day. You got anything to wear? And I said, no, I about got too fat for everything I got. I don't have anything. So... Uh, He's retired Air Force, and I was fortunately retired Marine Corps, and by half that, uh, I can order a uniform. So, so what am I going to do? Get greens? I'm going to wear them in winter. Get tropicals? I'm going to wear them in the summer. Well, this is winter month, so I said, well, I can get blues, and I can wear them whenever. So uh, I did. I went to the uh, uh, PX in um, Jacksonville, and they said, well, we don't have the Marine uniform per se, Hanging here, we got trousers and shirts and hats and all that, but they didn't have the jacket. So I they got a number, they gave me the number, and it came out of, of uh, Pensacola. They got it over there. So anyway, I ordered one, and uh, they wanted to copy my ID card and a copy my DD-214, my discharge. Well, why do I want to get a dress blues? I served a little over four years. One stripe means four years. I'm a hash party. And I served a little over four years, 
but I never did see anybody in blues because I was a mud marine. You know, I'm a, I'm a grunt. I'm out there pounding carry a rifle and all that stuff. So I didn't see all these glory boys. <laughs> so uh, I just, uh, I said, well, I'll get one. And I had to, how do I, how do I wear it? What do I do? So anyway, I did all that to, to get in here because I wanted these youngsters to see that I, I never got to saw, see what it was. Didn't know who, what they looked like. First time I ever saw blues was when the Everly brother, the brothers came on TV and sang in Wake Up Little Susie, and they was dressed up in that. So, <laughs> But you folk, young folks don't realize who they were. But anyway, um, I'm proud to, to have served in the Marine Corps, and, and I didn't know uh, what it was. Some folks can't serve. They, they, they don't have the opportunity. And uh, some chose this, some chose that. Some didn't have a choice. I draft... Uh, Signed up for the uh, draft when I was 18, like most of us did. They don't do the draft anymore, but back in the day, they did. And uh, when Vietnam was full-fledged, some guy said, uh, we went down with the group, big bunch of men out there, and said, from this line over, Marine Corps, this line over, Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever they did. That's what they did. You, you didn't have a choice. You're going that way. You're going this way. Well, I did. I had a choice, and I'd, I chose the Marine Corps, and and because the Navy recruiter was out of the office, mainly because I was looking for him, but he was gone. <laughs> anyway, I got in there, and uh, I got to boot camp, and uh, got up to Paris Island, and they, the, the instructors, give us all this information, and I'm going to try to share some of that with you this morning, of what they told us that we should be uh, proud of. They said, uh, you, what you join? You want to be a Marine? I said, yeah, I want to be a Marine. And they told us we wouldn't make a pimple on a Marine anywhere. So we, we're not nothing. We, we're down yonder. Because <laughs> we, we wouldn't call a Marine until we graduated. We was recruit or worse. And uh, anyway, when they got in there, they told us about the, the Navy was formed in October 13th. 1775. This is before the Declaration of Independence. 1775. The Navy. Well, when they got formed, they come down there and they said, well, we need something like the Marine Corps. So November 10th, 1775, the Marines was formed. They was to go, about 100 of them or less, was to go aboard the ships and be in the crow's nest. All they wanted were sharpshooters, the minute men of the time, you know, to get ready in a minute. The minute men get ready, and they would go, and they wanted sharpshooters to get in the crow's nest up in the top, the mast of the ship. And that's what the Marine sharpshooters were for. They were called soldiers of the sea a little later. But anyway, at the time, they was they were sharpshooters. And uh, my hat doesn't have an X in the top of it because I'm a non-commissioned officer. Commissioned officers have uh, an X in the top of their hat. And that was for the guy that was in the crow's nest looking on the deck of the ships around there could see who was in charge, who the officer was to direct his fire here or there. Well, that was in 1770. The first battle they encountered was in March of 1776, still before the Declaration of Independence. Anyway, that was in the Bahamas. And they got down there, and then... 1779, you've heard of John Paul Jones, maybe? You know, anyway, he was uh, aboard a ship called the, uh, this is southeast Missouri, the way we pronounce it, Bonhomme Richard. Some call it Bonhomme Richard, but that's French way of saying it. We said it Bonhomme Richard. But he was aboard that, and we had a few Marines aboard that. They was fighting the frigate of the uh, British, the Serapis, and... Somebody lobbed a grenade over into it and went in the hole, blowed the ship up. So it was a bigger ship, but it got done. But anyway, it made history. Well, during the Revolutionary War, the uh, these Marines was uh, fighting, doing all this stuff. They went out and got them a piece of leather, and they wrapped that around their neck so that they wouldn't be bayoneted or sword, hit, cut their head and decapitate them. So there come the word from leathernecks. This uniform represents that leatherneck with a high collar. 
and that is traditional for the Marines to have that. And they put it in little blues. So that that's part of that uniform. Uh, one guy told me one time, he said, well, I know the Marines always look like they had their hat shield on their head. That's because they got that high collar. I guess it is. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's all right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and they drifted on through the Civil War. And, I mean, not the Civil War, but the uh, the uh, Revolutionary War. And they got over in the War of Mexico. 1846 to 1848 was fighting down there. And uh, during this battle, uh, for you youngsters or any of you, you don't know what, what what's the difference between a commissioned officer and a non-commissioned officer. Well, you know, an enlisted man, enlisted man, enlisted into the service is a, the best he can do is a non-commissioned officer or maybe a warrant officer. And we wear stripes on our sleeve. Officers wear their rank on their collar and lapel, right in here, up here on the epaulet. So that's the only difference I can tell you, you know, except they got a commission and we didn't. We, we just got promoted. That's what we're. But anyway, in this battle in Mexico, uh, Mexico City, there was a town down there called Chapultepec, Chapultepec. And during this battle, all the NCOs and officers was killed, every one of them, none. And this, this red stripe is a blood stripe in honor of all the officers and NCOs. Only officers and NCOs get to wear the blood stripe. And that's remembrance too, and they put it on the blues again, that's remembrance too, the guys that was killed uh, because that was a sacrifice they paid. So the Battle of Chapultepec in Mexico City, and uh, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, you know, there's a little hymn, ring hymn. Well, that's what they're talking about, the uh, Battle of Chapultepec, the halls of Montezuma. 1914, I guess it was, <clears throat> the Marines went to, they're big old names, so they're little nicknames. They went to... Um, World War One. It was fighting over there with the, against the Germans for the French, and they had a battle over there called the Battle of Bella Wood, and uh, the, the Marines was over there, and it was such ferocious fighters, uh, according to the Germans, that they changed the name from the Battle of Bella Wood to the Battle of the Marine Brigade. A brigade is a group of men. It's uh, two regiments. Two regiments. A uh, regiment has uh, three battalions, first, second, third, usually. So you got, and a battalion consists of a thousand men. So it's about three thousand men per regiment. So you got two regiments, six thousand men. So that's what they're talking about. A brigade, the brigade of the battle of the the Marines. And the Germans named them Devil Dogs because of the ferocity that they fought the Marines. It was called Devil Dogs, World War I. And a lot of men give their life. World War II came along, and somewhere during there, through that and Korea, we got the name Jarhead. Holding the Marine, Jarhead. Well, what's a Jarhead? You know what it is? Well, a guy told me, it was a sailor, by the way, told me, told me that, what Jarhead said, that name come from because Mason Jar Company went and made helmets for them. So that's what we was wearing, them Jarheads on our head. <laughs> uh, things about three pounds, I'll tell you, they're heavy. <laughs> but um, that, that's how that was. And then um, World War II came on, and I would say probably the glory years, uh, real closer to home for us because we're of that generation. You know. But uh, in 1942, they had the battle at Guadalcanal, and uh, we had the first Marine, and several of them. I hadn't said a lot about the Army because the Army was busy in Europe doing their fighting, and, and the Marines was, as far as I knew, didn't go to anywhere in Europe. So all we had was in the islands of Japan. So that's where the, the uh, World War II for the Marine Corps was, is in the Pacific. And uh, it was over there in Guadalcanal. They lost a lot of ships. We did. 
But they, they kind of laid off on us, the Japanese did. They really meant to win that war. And they really made a rough on us. They lost about half of that landing force on Guadalcanal and a lot of ships. Not, yeah, 1943 of November, there's an island about 2,350 miles south and west of Hawaii called Tarawa. And uh, it's on the equator. Not a very big island, but it's catacombed. A lot of catacombed caves and stuff like that. And um, the, uh, an admiral from the Japanese says, this is recorded somewhere, I read it. It would take a, a million men, a thousand years to take that island. That's how fortified it was. Well, David M. Shoup was commandant of the Marine Corps when I went in 1962. He was the colonel, full bird colonel, that led that assault. He was the seventh wave. The first six got blown out of the water. He was the seventh wave that got on the toehold on Tarawa. And they took it in nine days. Now, we can say what you want to. That's, that's record. <laughs> and uh, it's bloody, no doubt. Anyway, they started to march up through the islands. This was Gilbert Islands is where Tarawa was located. Went up to Peleliu, Saipan, Iwo Jima, which was real bloody, Okinawa. It was marching up in, in the May, I think it was, of 1945. It was in Okinawa. And they landed, I think it was 90,000 uh, Army personnel, soldiers, and 80,000 Marines. And they went this way and that way. And finally they come back in the middle of the island, a little place called wasn't big as nothing, but it was still catacombed. It had 100,000 Japanese in it. And they was there to the end. They, they was already said their funeral and everything before they left. They fought for uh, months before they ever got it. But as soon as they got in there, the uh, admiralty of the uh, Japanese started sending kamikazes planes into the Navy fleet. Chester A. Nimitz, Secretary of the Navy when I went in 62, he was the PAC Pacific Fleet Commander at that time, the Admiral. But anyway, they started sending kamikazes in there to make his fleet leave the 170,000 men they'd put ashore, starve them out. No supplies, no food. But he wouldn't do it. Chester Nimitz says, I'm not leaving. He lost ships, several ships, but they stayed and stayed. 300 Japanese kamikazes took the plane and nosedived into them when they could hit a ship. But these guys stood t tight. The Navy, the Marines, and the Army was all in one, one group doing this. I'm sure the Air Force, sorry, was, in, was doing it too, but, you know, they was part of it. All of us were, and it was a nation fighting for that, for our freedom, because we'd been speaking Japanese today, had it not been. Anyway, that war went on, and then we know that after that was had a mom, and that was the end of that. Korea came on in uh, 51, 50, 51, 52, 53. <laughs> I never did know Brother Carol Ward, Sister Dodger's dad. I wish I had, but he was a Korean veteran. And uh, from what I read, and know that these guys was just a Chosen Reservoir in North Korea, 50, and the temperatures were from 20, I mean 30 to 50 degrees below zero. Days, no place to warm up, no tent to get into, and most of those guys come back with frostbite, frostbitten in their feet, in their heads, whatever. But you just imagine how cold it is. Anyway, that's what it was, but I'd like to have talked to him, but I didn't. Vietnam came on. That was the war that wasn't going on when I signed up. <laughs> but it was a war the time I got into boot camp. And uh, Kennedy set the blockade up down in Cuba. And they come and told us, girls, y'all might wake up in the morning in Cuba. <laughs> we about scared us to death. We ain't been shot to re taught how to shoot yet. We don't know anything. <laughs> uh, that was funny. But <laughs> girls, yeah, that's us. But, um, Vietnam came and gone, and 
you know, that was there, and that was a, not good. But anyway, we came out of that. And then I know the, the desert storms and the Iraqs and Afghanistan is going on now. These guys are facing the same thing in 1775 as they are today. Same thing, you know, fighting for your life. They say, well, you go and do this for your country. Yeah, when I signed up, I said country. But when it gets down to it, that life that you're holding in here is what's most precious to you. You fight for him. The other guy beside you, sure, I'll, I'll do what I can. But with that last piece of breath belongs to me. I want to get that. And it's scary because you, you, you say, well, life's precious. Well, it is. And, and when you get to look at things from the other side, it's a, it's a different thing. Vietnam has over 58,000 names carved on that wall. Washington, D.C. I've been there about three times. And it's like walking into a cemetery. You're going to read those names. And it's, it's not a good feeling. But praise God, my name is not on that wall. I had praying people. I didn't know who they were. Somebody. But God saw fit to keep me from getting killed. And uh, I'm forever thankful because from that to this, he saw fit to save me, to save my life, save my soul. And I've got to recognize who he is. And today, I want to say that Jesus is the way. Wrap your arms around him, grab him by the toe, whatever you need to do, just hold on to him somehow. And don't take, turn loose of his hand because he'll take care of us. And when you let over with a kidney stone <laughs> rolling around in you, call on that name and there'll be some peace come on you. It's there and it's available for all of us. Jesus, help me, Lord God. And he'll do that. Thank you for this. Thank you for the veterans that's come and gone and there's several in here that didn't come up today. But God bless you and I thank you for you. I love you, church. I appreciate you. God bless you. Thank you. the Lord. You may be seated. I feel out of place. The only one not in a uniform. Justin asked me, why didn't you wear your uniform? I said, that wouldn't have been a very pretty sight. I've grown a little bit since then. They only issued me one basic training. I know it doesn't look like it, but I've grown a little bit. So. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to um, to be able to stand here. I certainly don't deserve to be. And I, I also don't think that it's a coincidence that uh, the Veterans Day service that we typically celebrate and typically have has been rescheduled to this particular day. I say that because as a nation we've just celebrated Thanksgiving and Although we've already observed Veterans Day as a nation, and, and, and we've done that nationally, and we've also done it as a church, I, I believe that this day will serve to be a constant reminder that we should observe and celebrate these things so much more and not just reserve them for one day a year. It's, it's because of, of, of veterans, and, and I often say this, but I certainly don't say it to bring any any undue honor to myself, but it's because veterans that we have a season to do this. It's because of men and women that have answered a call in their lives that, that allow us to have a church today. You know, there are so many nations across this world that it's, it's, a, it's a crime to do what we're doing right now. And so it's it's veterans, it's men and women that, um, that feel that sense of duty and have a calling on their lives that that answer that and serve in this country that and preserve the very freedoms that we so easily take for granted. In 1997, 
I made a decision to serve my country, and um, I had no idea that that would, um, years later, would put me in the middle of a conflict that uh, that that was a direct result of of some actions that uh, people took to try to end those freedoms that we that we take for granted. September 11th is is a day that we all can remember. It's it's not a day that's easily forgotten. I, I'm sure that I can ask anyone in this building where you were September 11th, 2001, and you would be able to tell me. But it was it was resolve. It was determination that that uh, that people had not allowed that act to utterly destroy what we are and who we are as a nation. And, and so we we did go to war uh, some years later. And despite the current state that that we all could be, could say about where we are as a nation today, the the fact still remains that we still live in the greatest nation on earth. I'm honored to say that I had the privilege to serve the state of Florida in the United States of America from 1997 to 2005 in the uh, Florida Army National Guard. And that included a tour of Iraq for one year of active duty from 03 to 04. And so going to Iraq was certainly not something that I had planned to do in serving. I, I really thought that I was just signing up to to be a guardsman, a weekend warrior, someone that could just do that part-time. I didn't do that just because it was easy. I, I did it because it was better suited for my lifestyle at the time. I worked a full-time job, and, and I was able to do that and serve on the weekends. But we did go to Iraq uh, during 2003 and 2004, uh, which was a, a culmination of several events, including uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, we were the Florida Army National Guard 269th Engineer Company, and we were stationed out of Live Oak, Florida, just just a few minutes down the road. And when we went there, we we ended up going from Kuwait. Uh, we stayed there a couple months, and then convoyed into the uh, country of Iraq to a place called Balad, which was about 60 miles north um, of the of the city of Baghdad. It was a um, it was a old Air Force base that they put us on. It was something that uh, had been destroyed in uh, the early 90s. If you ever remember, well, I'm sure you do, uh, the first Gulf War uh, through a series of bombings and, and things of that nature that the United States did. It destroyed this this Air Force base. Its runways were destroyed, and uh, a lot of its housing was uh, was just kind of leveled and. And so we were just tasked to go there and uh, and rebuild this Air Force base into into working order. It was a logistical staging area for a lot of units that would come in. It was sort of kind of a central location uh, that they could stage their equipment and they could stage convoys uh, and, and, and perform combat missions out of that particular base. Uh, it was our primary mission to do that, but at the same time, we were still soldiers. And uh, we were tasked with uh, protecting that, that, that base, that equipment. And uh, about a few weeks in, uh, we thought that uh, the announcement of combat missions ending would send us home, but it didn't. Um, it, it only uh, solidified our, our reason for staying, which was to rebuild. Um, and so with that, for some reason, on July the 4th, 2003, uh, the the Iraqis started combat missions of their own, and uh, through series of mortar attacks and strikes uh, over the course of several days and weeks, uh, one particular incident, our hospital was was attacked. Uh, many of you have heard this testimony before, so I certainly don't mean to bore you with that. But uh, we we suffered significant casualties uh, in that in that series of events. And that's what really, really made it real at that point. You know, it, for several months, I, 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 I feel bad for saying this, but there wasn't a whole lot to do. And so we just sort of sat around and played video games. Grown men playing video games. 
because there was nothing to do. And so it, it almost seemed like we were just there for, for nothing. Uh, but when those combat missions started from the other direction, made it real. It opened our eyes to what we really were there for, that there was a real enemy that we were fighting against. And so if I could just take that and put it in a spiritual sense, you know, we can spend our lives just thinking everything's okay and that, you know, we're just kind of moving through life at, at our own pace. But there is a real enemy that we fight against every day of our lives. And so we can't just be... Um, um, Blind to that, we can't allow that uh, mindset to take over because what it will do is it will catch us off guard. And so I just want to just briefly just cover two particular incidents uh, that happened there. Uh, one, because it involved me directly. And uh, the second one, because it was it was an absolute miracle. Uh, when we first arrived, we would... Um, we set up a, a logistical staging area of our own. We had a motor pool, which housed all of our equipment. We were civil engineer unit, so we paved roads. We uh, had our own rock crusher plant that would crush rock. We would make asphalt ourselves, and then we would lay the asphalt uh, and repair roads and runways and things of that nature. So we had a lot of equipment. And between the perimeter fence and our tents was our motor pool, so there's a little bit of a barrier there. We had what we call Connex boxes. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but uh, they're long, uh, semi-trailer-looking metal boxes that um, that they use to ship cargo overseas. We had uh, several of those that had some equipment in them, and we used those to set up fighting positions on the top of them. We had ladders that went up to them. We had a, a bunker, so to speak, set up on the top with sandbags and things of that nature. One particular night, it was uh, getting dark, and, and it was around the 4th of July. It was when everything started kind of breaking out. And uh, we had uh, a, a little bit of a mortar attack uh, where they would, you know, just kind of chunk mortars over at random objects. They had no particular um, reason for doing that other than just to destroy people and equipment. Um, so there wasn't any specific targets. They would just randomly do that. Uh, and we had word that uh, that it was a possibility that some had entered into what we call the wire, which is the outer perimeter fence. And so everybody was on the ready. And I was tasked with being on one of the uh, quick response teams that would have to go to this Connex box fighting position and just sort of kind of wait and see what happened and engage if we had to. And I remember that vividly that night. As, uh, you know, sirens begin to go off and, and everybody begin to, to move around and get everything situated and, uh, taken care of. And, and a friend of mine that I went into the National Guard with, he and I were battle buddies, what we called them in the Army. And, uh, that was our fighting position. So we took off to that place. Well, he made it there first. He was a lot faster than I was. And, um, he got there first, got up the ladder and took my weapon from me and as I went up the ladder as soon as I hit the top he said be careful because there's there's tracer rounds going overhead and it could have been 30 feet overhead but it might as well have been two inches because when you see those tracer rounds coming over it doesn't matter if it's friendly fire or enemy fire it's time to get down and so that was a very eye-opening experience to know that this is real this is not a game and uh, it sort of kind of put us in a in a state of whatever you want to call that. It was it was scary. Um, and so we made it through that. That was the night that the hospital was attacked, and and it was fairly bad. Um, and I'll not say anything else about that. Uh, and then the other experience. A lot of you have known about this. I've I've told this before, but it, I think it bears repeating because it was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle. My grandfather, when he was still alive, he gave me a prayer cloth to take with me. I wasn't living for God. But I knew enough that that was real. 
have been raised in church. And I knew what anointing was. I knew what, what prayer could do. And he said, I want you to take this cloth. And he got a piece of brown cloth because everything we wore underneath our uniform was tan or brown. So I want you to keep this. And I have no doubt today, I didn't realize this then, but I have no doubt today that God had his hand not only on me, but every one of the men and women that were in that unit. And I'm talking about men and women that weren't from Florida, that weren't from around here. We got attached to a unit out of Oklahoma. And I'm telling you, I know without a shadow of a doubt that that prayer cloth, that's that significant event, that prayer I'm not talking about because I was the one that had it, but that, that prayer, that saturated prayer from this church, I believe that it covered every one of those men. And I say that because we were one of the only units that traveled there that came back without any war casualties. 117 men was unheard of. Just several weeks before we convoyed from Kuwait to Iraq, we took the wrong route, as a matter of fact. We took the the heavily uh, combative route, which was the opposite of the one we were supposed to take. Just several weeks before that, a unit of of a transportation unit that was taking uh, some equipment to somewhere up in Iraq had been attacked. And some soldiers had been captured. And some of those were females. It was a very significant event. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but it was on, it was on the news. Um, and so we were only two weeks behind the 3rd Infantry Division that uh, went in and, and initially uh, broke combat in that area. Two weeks behind them, we suffered no casualties. And so I, I'm, I'm a believer that prayer absolutely works we uh we were getting ready to de um to sort of kind of uh get ready to leave uh we were going through some some deep briefings and things of that nature and uh we would have to go to the airport do those things and come back and uh, one particular day the uh, platoon that I was in went to do that and coming back, everything was kind of in an uproar where we were stationed, our our, uh, our housing and all that, our tents. And some men from our unit uh, was redirecting traffic to uh, to detour the the street that we were on that went right past our tents. Uh, and so we 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 rerouted over to the uh, headquarters building. And we were asking what was going on, and through um, everything going on and and all the chaos and, and, and calamity that was happening, we finally found out what had actually happened. Uh, some locals had uh, staged an attack, and they they fired three what we called mortars, which are actually rockets. They they uh, appear to be a rocket. It's the same thing that you would probably shoot in the air for fireworks or something like that. It looks like a rocket has fins on the back. And they would stuff those things with shrapnel and rig a detonator, and it would detonate on impact. And that's what they call mortars. It, you just kind of arc them. They, there's no, it's not a missile to where you would have a, a designated target. It just kind of arcs, and where it lands, it explodes like a grenade. And so they fired three. In that particular attack. And they fired them right over our motor pool. And the trajectory of them caused two to land inside the motor pool and explode on impact and did some damage to some vehicles. But the significant part of this, and this is where this, this hall culminates into I, what I believe is the, is the power of God is that the third came through a tent that was full of men 
they were sort of kind of in between missions and they were just kind of hanging out, you know, and talking and a couple watching TV and video games, things of that nature, just kind of being guys. And so the two landed in the motor pool, exploded. The third came down inside the tent, entered the tent, and came into the floor. We had wood floors that we had made when we first got there. It came into the floor, just inches beside a man's foot that was propped up on a bunk, just inches, and penetrated that wood floor and did not explode. Say what you want to. You can say coincidence. You could say happenstance, whatever. But I, I firmly believe, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, that the prayer of God's people is absolutely heard. And it can protect. Brother Davis talked about that just a minute ago. Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only light. And so when his people that wrap their arms around him, that live for him every day, pray to him, He hears. He hears from heaven. And he will protect. And so, in spite of the negativity that surrounds any wartime situation, whether it's disagreement with the cause or the actuality and reality of what war can actually bring, I would have to say firmly today that I would do it all over again. Granted, I would do... a. A lot of things differently. Obviously, I was not living for God. And I I certainly don't condone anybody doing whatever they want to and expecting God to to see them through. That's that's not my message today. But I would do a, a lot of things differently. But I would do it all over again. Because I, I don't regret my service. It, it gave me something. It... it, uh, it it put discipline in me. It gave me a, a drive and a determination to to be to be a man. It, it gave me a sense of accomplishment, and it gave me a sense of ownership that I can stand here today and say that this is my country because I fought for it. And I know I stand with men and women today that feel the, the exact same way. That if the need arose and you were called, that you would do it again. Not just the two men sitting on this platform today and not just me, but there are countless other men and women in this building today that have served their country. And I I believe firmly that you would do it again if the need arose. I'm thankful for men and women that answer the call. I'm thankful for men and women that stand for this country and that stand for freedom. But if I could just make a shift here above all of that, I'm thankful for those same men and women that have answered the call of God. I'm thankful for men and women that have taken their drive and their determination and placed it into something far greater in placing it in the kingdom of God and now stand for Jesus Christ, his cause, and the truth of his word. You see, I believe that we're all blessed for men and women that have answered the call and entered into this battle. You see, we all belong to an army, and we all have a calling on our lives. Every single one of us, there is no one exempt. You, Some of us have been doing this for a while, but some of us are just getting started. But we've all been given a privilege today to stand in the army of the Lord. And so as we close today and we stand together, whatever capacity you served, whether in wartime or in peacetime, I say thank you. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your determination. And thank you for your sacrifice and for your service. But to those who have not served in the literal military that stand in this building today, I just want to say thank you, number one, for your prayer, and two, for your service 
in the kingdom of God. Because none of this is possible without you, without each and every one of you to show up and to be used of God, to, to avail your life to him and to everything that he is and everything that he stands for. I wonder right now if we could just lift our hands. I'm going to ask our musicians if they will return to the platform. We have a lot to be thankful for today. I wonder if we could just lift our hands right now and thank God for his abundant grace, for his mercy, for placing men and women in our lives that have answered the call of God. Let's ask him right now just to touch our hearts and our minds that we would just have a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of thankfulness that would just resonate in our hearts, not just today and not just tomorrow. But for weeks and months and years to come, would you just do that right now? Would you just lift your hands? We're going to sing a song. We're just going to end this service with family prayer. If if you would like, you can bring your family around this altar. We're just going to have a season that we're just going to be thankful and ask Him to have His way. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.